This is not an original line, but it has to be used to introduce the author of the beloved children's book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Michael Rosen couldn't go over it, couldn't go under it. He had to go through it. Covid, for one thing, which nearly killed him. The death of his 18-year-old son, Eddie, in 1999. And the undiagnosed hypothyroidism that sucked the life out of him for 12 years. He writes about these crises and more in a book called Getting Better, which is also a book of advice on how to do just that. Rosen is a poet, an educator, a playwright, a broadcaster, and an avid tweeter about many things, but often about COVID, which has recently been the subject of an inquiry in the UK revealing, for example, that Prime Minister Boris Johnson said he would rather let the bodies pile high than impose a new lockdown. These and other revelations have been particularly enraging for Michael Rosen, who joins me now. Hi, Michael. How are you? Uh, hi. I'm, I'm very well, actually. Good. Uh, lovely to be on your show. And, um, well, uh, I guess congratulations were in order, um, even though you're saying goodbye, because, um, you know, you've been presenting this programme uh, once or twice before, I gather. Stop it. Stop it now. Tell me about yourself. Well, How is the recovery from COVID complete yet? Um, no, there's permanent damage. So I had microbleeds in my brain, which knocked out most of the sight of my left eye and most of the hearing in my left ear. I have to say that carefully. I sometimes end up saying most of the hearing in my left eye, and most right. of the sight in my left ear. <laughs> Uh, because one of the other features of post-COVID is you can get a bit muddled. Um, when I said that to a child, I said, I lost most of the sight from my left ear. She said, no, you wouldn't have. She was quite cross about that. Uh, is this, she was only about five. Is this uh, long COVID, Michael, or is this just the after effects of the extreme form of COVID that you suffered? I think it's mostly people, when they talk, people talk about long COVID, they mean this extreme fatigue. So they, they do something active like, washing up or walking to the shops um, and then just collapse exhausted for the next few hours. That hasn't happened to me. Um, no, this is a more permanent damage as a consequence of the fact that COVID, which people often think of as a respiratory disease, in actual fact is also, or even primarily, as in my case, a vascular disease. That's to say it affected the veins and the arteries and gave me blood clots and aneurysms. So that was why I've got the damage in my left eye and left ear and numbness in my toes as well. The extraordinary thing about you is that you are now busier than you've ever been before in your life. And you also, on what was formerly known as Twitter, take on people who, whose minds will never be changed about, for example, the vaccination. Why yes, are you doing that? Yes, no, it's a good point. <laughs> I'll take that almost as an admonishment. Yes. No, um, no, don't. I, but well, it's just, it's, a, I, it's I think, a terrible waste of your energy, I would have thought. No, I feel sometimes that I almost have a duty to do it. That as someone who's benefited, I believe, from vaccination, for example, or alternatively people telling me that COVID was either invented or was just a cold, and I say, well, that's not how it affected me. So that at least people know 
out there that that some people who did experience COVID in the way that I did can say that because there is this extraordinary thing. We've seen various people on television saying things like, well, I don't know anybody who suffers from COVID, so I don't believe in it. And then I always feel like saying, well, you perhaps have never met anyone who was murdered. So what, do you believe that no one is murdered? There's a kind of, if I wasn't there, then it didn't happen theory, which does disturb me sometimes because it defies rationality. So I feel that I have to chip in with my two pennyworth, as we still say in England, if you're my age, um, uh, to say that, um, well, actually, this was a real lived experience. So I feel a kind of responsibility, if you like. And there are still people who who tell you that the reason you got so sick was because of the vaccination. And you have to once again point out that you became sick with COVID before the vaccination was introduced. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I do laugh when I do it because I sort of think there's somebody who doesn't know me, who wasn't there at the time. And they go, they say, yes, that's right. Well, you got sick because of the vaccination. And I say, well, this was March 2020. And actually, the vaccine wasn't invented. I mean, it it does have its own hilarious uh, aspect, if you like, that someone is telling me this. And, um, you know, they're not a doctor. They're just nearly always some anonymous person with three followers. But I just think there's a public need to say, to point out there are people saying these, these wrongnesses. And are you over your absolutely natural outrage at the revelations that came out of the inquiry into the UK's response to COVID? No, no, I haven't got over that yet. Uh, That's in a way more damaging than anything else. I mean, if you look very closely at the wording, uh, these are comes from the notebook of Patrick Vallance, who was um, a key government uh, uh, scientist at the time. Um, and he was jotting down what people like Boris Johnson and our present Prime Minister Rishi Sunak were saying, and they were saying things like, well, if people die, that's okay. Let the bodies pile high, as you just said there. Um, They've had a good innings. They've had a good innings, so you go to the cricket field in order to get your analogies for life, and then um, people were due to die anyway. I paraphrased that one. And what you have there, it was their time had come. You get a strange mixture. I mean, what is it? It's as if somehow or other life is a game of cricket, but um, somehow or other the scorecard has been written before we've played. And that people like Boris Johnson think, or Rishi Sunak indeed, may think that somehow or other that is life. And so it's a very strange mixture between the the people that Dickens was uh, criticising with A Christmas Carol, namely the people inspired by the philosophy of Malthus, that... If only you could have fewer people, you wouldn't have any poverty. And on the other hand, the philosophy of somebody like Calvin from much earlier, who thought that we were all predestined to be either saved or not not saved or live or not lived. And so you get a horrible mixture between Malthus and Calvin determining our lives. I mean, we all remember that lovely song, K Sarah Sarah, but that's, that's just a song and it's a way of, you know, seeing us through the next minute, the next hour, the next day, K Sarah Sarah. But you can see Boris Johnson, who prides himself on this classical education and knowing his you know, fallacies of Roman logic and that sort of thing, actually saying, well, if people die, so be it. Well, that is case Sarah Sarah, you know, from a prime minister. Now, you had a prime minister uh, going through COVID who took a completely opposite view, who thought there were active steps that you should take. Well, clearly at the beginning, at any rate, that's to say February and March 
2020, Johnson thought, if they die, so be it. Case hurrah, hurrah. I get the feeling that you feel some moral obligation to be to be as busy as possible now to prove that there is life in you yet. Um, it's possibly a bit more egotistical than that, that um, I enjoy it. Uh, I can't see much point being the person I am, being inactive. That's, so I'm not saying that everybody's got to be active if they don't want to be, you know, sitting on your backside or watching some sport or doing some gardening. These are all terrific things. But being the person I am, I can only make logical sense of my life if I'm active, writing and performing in schools and doing radio shows in, in, here in Britain. Um, that's the only way I'm, I can make sense of my life, really. And this is the message that we get from your book, Getting Better. It's how you've coped with the death of your son, Eddie, for example. You had to get on with life. Um, Eddie died from meningococcal septicemia in a, just a matter of hours. One minute he was feeling off colour and the next morning he was dead. And this is the first time you've written about that in an extended way, I think. That's right. I'd written some fragments, if you like, which I put together in a book called Carrying the Elephant. And that, for the time being, was a, a, a kind of holding activity it, it sort of it kind of sorted it for me um sometimes writing in fragments is very useful you don't have to do a great linking narrative you don't have to turn it all into one great logical piece um uh, and that was good that that helped i could just write down the little tiny bits that i remembered or i wanted to say how i felt i remember writing a little line like one of us fell off the boat we didn't have time to say goodbye. Then it was just, just a little thought, almost like a little Japanese poem, like a haiku sort of thing. And um, that was okay. But then uh, as the years have gone by, I sort of felt that I, I had to make, a, make this longer narrative, logical narrative that we're used to doing when we write stories or when we write a piece of nonfiction, uh, say in a, in a newspaper or even in a, you know, a whole book and so on. And so I felt I needed to do that in order to, it, it, it's in a way it puts it to bed i don't mean you you kill it off which of course is not a very nice metaphor to be talking about that but um it is a way of resting it putting it to sleep in a comforting way if you can write out a narrative if anybody has a is is going through bereavement or you know in a way we all do at some point in our lives one way to assist yourself if you like is just to sit there and calmly write out the narrative of how that person went from your life or anything important about them. And there's something calming about doing that. In the book, in the chapter in which you describe the death of Eddie, who sounds as if he was just a fantastic kid, um, you say, I then met Emma, we got married, we've had two children. There would be nothing more absurd or offensive of me to say to someone who's lost a loved one than get married, have some kids. <laughs> it's just that you're trying to be honest and you're also signalling that life can go on alongside the grief. 
indeed yes that's right and but i i have to say i mean i i may have been i may be a very lucky person in that that happened to me some people who suffer a big bereavement maybe all bereavements big but it felt like a huge life-changing bereavement in my case that they may not necessarily meet a very special other they may not meet a special other with whom they can have a child and therefore generate new life so i realized that was something that was very particular and lucky on, on, that happened in my life. And of course, some of those feelings that I had for, the, uh, for Eddie, for the lost one, obviously, in a way, it's not that you transfer them across to the new children, but the new children are so absorbing that, yes, I, you know, I'm sorry about this, Eddie, um, if he's you know, in the room with me now, but there were times when I was so been so absorbed with these new children that you were in, in a sense pushed to one side i have to admit that because it was so absorbing and other people who haven't had that chance to have those caring affectionate feelings you know so so used used up so so absorbed if you like by new people uh, sometimes it can be grandchildren sometimes it could be a pet sometimes it could be sport but in my case it was new children um that that was a lucky thing that was a lucky thing for me and uh, i've never forgotten it do you visit his grave now i know you didn't for a long long time i i haven't I, it's something funny I, I i suppose there's a little bit of me that worries that i'll kind of crack up there is something something about me that tries to kind of uh avoid cracking up though though i do though sometimes i do i might be listening to a piece of music or Something that happened to me just a short while ago, I, I visited a school in London and I was just about to go on and do my show, which I have to sort of jolly myself up, sort of build myself up just a little bit, go through the kinds of poems I'm about to do. Am I going to do Bear Hunt? Am I going to do that funny one where this, that and that happened? And a lady was sitting there and she, she looked at me and she said, you know, I was in the same class as Eddie. And I said, were you? And then this is the bit that was difficult. She took out of her bag a photograph and it was a photograph of her class with eddie in it and i'd never seen the picture before <sighs> and it wasn't one of those formal school photographs where the kids are all in a row it was it was beautiful what they were doing was lolling about in the way kids do particularly in their last year at primary school year six as we call it here and um they were lolling about on the steps leading up into the school and some of them were on the lower steps some are on the higher steps and eddie sat there and there he was sitting there um, on the top step and um, showing the soles of his shoes. He, he did very eccentric, funny things. And I think the, the soles of his shoes had some funny things on them or there were different colours or something. And he, he had a little look on his face of saying, hey, this is going to be fun. And I remembered that look suddenly. I think I'd almost forgotten that look on his face. And it just got me. I mean, whoosh, it went straight to my guts um in a way that i really wasn't expecting and it was a bit unfortunate that the lady said it just before i was about to entertain 300 <laughs> children in a school and dance about you know going as i say going on a bear hunt and there i was full my head just stuffed full of this photograph and this look on eddie's face that that it was almost as if he had come back because i hadn't seen that look in what is nearly what 25 years and so there are these moments but i do try to I suppose I sometimes I do try to avoid them. And I think when you say, you know, have I visited the grave? 
I haven't yet, um, but I will. I will. And uh, his brother, his older brother, Joe, said uh, he's been a couple of times. He didn't tell me, which is sort of absolutely his business. So um, I will go. I will. Yes, you've reminded me. I Sorry. <laughs> no, I didn't, no, mean, I didn't mean to remind you. Somebody's texted me to say yeah. Michael Rosen's sad book, which is the book that you wrote for children in the wake of Eddie's death, is one of the most beautiful and important books I have in my house. Well, that's very kind of them to say. Yes, that came about. It was quite strange, actually, about two years, I think, after Eddie died, maybe a bit less, 18 months or so. And I, I um, was doing a, a performance at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, and I was got to the end and I say, are there any questions? And people ask me things like, how old are you? And uh, where did you live? And where were you born? That sort of thing. And one child said, what's happened to Eddie, the, the baby in your poems? Because I've written these poems about Eddie being a very funny two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, playing all sorts of tricks on us, sticking cereal in my hairbrush and ripping wallpaper off the walls and all that sort of thing, and um, getting cross because he couldn't have a, more birthdays after he had his second birthday. He thought he ought to have another birthday the next day and then the next day and the next day. <laughs> And that sort of thing. And I've written these poems and kids do do seem to quite like them. And so they wanted to know, they want, this child wanted to know what had happened to Eddie. So I had to say in front of three or four hundred people at this family show, and I had to say, he died. And I suddenly felt the sort of room go cold. This was a large tent, actually. But anyway, the large tent, the marquee that we were in, go cold because it had been this sort of comic knockabout show for the previous hour or so. Um, and then I had to say he died of like a type of meningitis. And then there's a little pause and then there's another hand. And I said, what's your question? And somebody said, um, you know, what's your favorite food? You know, it just moved on. And then after I went home, I felt I've got to I've got to write about this. I've got to have something where I've told children who know about Eddie from these Eddie stories in a book I did called Quick, Let's Get Out of Here. And so I sat down and just wrote to that child in my mind not really to that child but in my mind what would i say to that child and so i wrote down what's maybe two or three hundred words and then i sent it off to uh, a publisher walker books and i said is this a book because i felt i sat on it for a few days and then i wondered is this a book so i've got a a thing to say next time a child says you know what's happened to eddie i can as it were hold the book up and they said yes and they teamed me up with Quentin Blake. Again, I'd done books with him before. And that's how the sad book came about. Yeah. He's done a very good drawing of you in that book. It's amazing. Huh. It, 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 and many things. I, I look at that book and it's a huge comfort to me uh, because what he's done and, and what he's so brilliant at is he's kind of read me, interpreted me, and then put that on the page so I can look at it and even though it, it isn't me because it's drawings, it's not a photograph and it's not reality. But when I look at it, it feels in a way a little bit like a mirror or at least an aspect of me. But what's lovely about it is he's, well, he's a very, very sensitive person who sees situations and can interpret them with his line and his, his wash that he, of his pictures. And it just, I feel at home in the book. It's, it's quite hard to describe, but where there's a bit of me walking down the street and looking at a train going past and there's cranes and buildings, 
and that is me totally i mean i was today i was you know walking along the street in the center of london and there's always cranes up in london they're always building something that nobody wants to live in um and um i was i was looking at it and thinking oh wow that that is me so he grabs those things he knows he knows how to do that so it is it's a very comforting place for me to be in that book when did you discover i mean you spent 40 days and 40 nights in uh, in a coma in hospital you were in intensive care for 48 days you were in a rehab hospital for three weeks extraordinary experience literally you died and came back when did you discover that people had put bears in their windows in honor of we're going on a bear hunt all over the world yes i think uh, the problem with answering that question is like this Anybody who's been in a coma for more than 10, 15 days is that you, you, your sense of who you are is all mixed up. It's like, it's like you've been in a liquidizer, right? So you come out of it, and though you might be answering questions and seeming to be quite logical, you know, would you like something to eat? Yes, please. Well, a day later, you may have forgotten it, that you said that. And then even if you remember it, you're then confused when you're remembering it. It's very hard to explain, but yeah. basically you don't come out of a coma. What happens is that you you go through various stages in which you are 90% um, unconscious, 80% unconscious, 50%, 30%, 20%, 10%. So you taper into consciousness. Do you get me? Uh -huh. So, uh, So if you say... When did I realize that people have put teddy bears in windows? Well, I probably realized in inverted commas the moment the first person told me. The only problem is <laughs> the next day I would have forgotten. So somebody came to me and said, you know, they're putting teddy bears in the windows and that's like to do with bear hunt. And I'd go, oh, wow, really? Not knowing that they'd told me the day before. Um, anyway, my memory's got a bit better. Since Good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's handy to know, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So... <clears throat> I would say um, by the time at the end of rehab, so by then uh, I'd been in hospital, as you say, three months, I was retaining stuff that people were telling me. And I even now I can remember things from that rehab period, even though I can't remember, say, day 42, day 43, day 44. So that's, in other words, when I'm just coming out of the coma. So I can't remember that. That's a complete blank. I've even seen film of me talking to the consultant. The consultant comes up to me and he says, hey, Michael, you've got children. And I say, apparently. <laughs> now, whether I was trying to be funny or whether I genuinely didn't know that, you know, that somebody had just told me the day before you've got children. And I said, "Did it, have I? And I'd forgotten that I had. I've no idea. But I've no, re no recollection of that particular conversation. So there's layers of unknowing. That, that if I wanted to be disturbed by it, I could be, but I'm not. Okay. Your your book, Getting Better, uh, of course, describes that, of course, describes Eddie's death. Um, and also, I mean, among other things, you know, your family afflicted by the Holocaust. But it also describes your hypothyroidism, which, as I said, was not diagnosed for 12 years. And the extraordinary effect it had on you, to the extent that I get the impression you were reborn as soon as it was diagnosed and you got the right uh, the right powder to eat that's right it's a very peculiar illness it's an autoimmune illness that's to say 
your own antibodies end up consuming one of your glands that produce a hormone that you need. You need pretty well all the hormones that you produce, but the, the thyroid hormone known as thyroxine is goes into every cell in your body. And if you if you haven't got it, then it starts affecting you. You get very cold, you get very sluggish, you've got no energy. Um, and eventually you will, in fact, die. If in the, before they discovered this illness, people just used to basically turn into a, a kind of blob, as I used to call it, but a kind of blob and just fade away. And you were so a bit blobby. 19th... Yes, oh, very much so. I mean, there are photographs of me and I, I look... A bit like those rather serene pictures of the Buddha, a great big wide face with, um, you know, which I don't have. I mean, I don't have a big wide face, but I, I did with that. It's a, bit, I mean, it's a bit hard to describe, but it's, it's what's called edema or mixedema. And it's basically fluid retention in the bits underneath the skin. So basically you're puff, puffy. That would be a better way to describe it. So it puffs up your, so if you imagine someone as, injected water under your skin uh, into your face then your face is made very very puffy looks like someone has sort of beaten you up without the bruises and um, that's what I looked like and um, also I was uh, my speech was slurred and so on so when it was diagnosed and I immediately started receiving treatment and luckily it's one of those autoimmune illnesses where the treatment they give you replaces what the gland produced so that's pretty handy so it just it replaces it so it pretty well works in 90 90 percent of people and uh i was indeed the word you used reborn exactly but the only snag with that was who am i am i the person i was before the 12 years am i the person during the 12 years am i a new person who's had those experiences before well that's the the last art the last question is that the answer to that is yes you are the person synthesized of what's come before but it's not necessarily how you think at that time I, I felt mixture between sad and bitter and surprised shocked and who was I was I could I go back to who I was before I was ill well not if, if it had just been diagnosed from six months I probably could have done but with 12 years of this decline if you like it was a pretty hard journey to make in my mind as to who I was so I did run about in in quite a frantic state possibly aided by the fact they gave me too much of the, <laughs> too much thyroxine so in a way I was heading towards what's called hyperthyroidism so the dose was taken down but um, I was running around if you excuse the language like a fart in a bottle those yeah. kind of near-death experiences. I'm talking to an Australian writer called Richard Flanagan. I don't know whether you know anything of him after 9.30 this morning. And he had, he nearly died in a river rapid in a kayak when he was 21. And he's written at length about that for the first time and can barely revisit it. Just, he just, he wrote it, he can't go back there, but he, I think he suffered a similar experience, that it was such a watershed, excuse that expression, that he just had to recompose himself afterwards. Yeah, there are very different and very interesting mental struggles that people go through who have these great traumas. I was with somebody just yesterday, as it happens, a woman who's a poet, writes for children, and she said something I didn't know about her, I mean, I've known her slightly for a year or two and so on. And she just said in front of this group of teachers that we were working with, 
um, I used to be a lawyer and uh, I walked out into the road uh, one day and got knocked down and um, I was in hospital for two years and I've been trying to put my life back ever since. And the, you could hear the room go quiet as they thought about this of some terrible accident that she's obviously survived and she's very physically okay uh, and looking at her. And, and again, it's this thing of where people have to put themselves back together. You you hear about it. Um, it I think he's quite popular in New Zealand, isn't he? Freddie mm -hmm. Flintoff, the cricketer, English cricketer. And he, he's been on this programme we do over here called Top Gear. Maybe it reaches New Zealand. Yes, where it does. People, they, where doesn't they, it reach? They, no, indeed. They prat about in cars. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the very sad thing of uh, he got a terrible accident. Well, you know, he's going to have to put himself back together mentally. It's, it's going to be a big, difficult thing for him. So many of us, many people have to do these things and um, we need help and we need strategies to do it. And, you know, sometimes you can't tell other people what they should do. You have to find your way to the strategy that works for you. And if you dip down and you hit a crisis, then you have to know how to get some help if you need it. So it's, it's always tricky. It's always very tricky. I am asked to tell you that your poem, Mart Was My Best Friend, is one of the most beautiful that Susie has uh, texted me this, most beautiful that she's ever read. Oh, well, thank you, Susie. And speaking uh, of yes, poems, this, this, mm. speaking of poems, Michael, um, yes. you penned a poem on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of the National Health Service, which came into its own once again as a consequence of COVID and the health workers who went above and beyond to serve people like you, saved your life, uh, and has become a bit of an anthem for the National Health Service. Yes. I wondered if you would read it for us, please. Mm. These are the hands that touch us first. Feel your head, find the pulse and make your bed. These are the hands that tap your back, test the skin, hold your arm, wheel the bin, change the bulb, fix the drip, pour the jug, replace your hip. These are the hands that fill the bath, mop the floor, flick the switch, soothe the sore, burn the swabs, give us a jab, throw out sharps, design the lab. And these are the hands that stop the leaks, empty the pan, wipe the pipes, carry the can, clamp the veins, make the cast, log the dose, and touch us last. That's lovely, thank you. I'm sure that meant thank a you. lot and still means a lot to the health workers. I hope so. I hope it says how much I personally appreciate what you do, what you've done. Also, every time someone puts it up, it's somebody else saying how much we collectively appreciate what you've done. And I hope people whose jobs are not mentioned on that list um, still, if, if you like, take comfort from it. I read it to a group of occupational therapists this week. I, I was speaking at a conference of occupational therapists, and I suddenly realised that really in that poem, it doesn't say what OTs, as we call them, what OTs had done for me, which was, I mean, remember when I came out of that coma, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk or anything. I, I really, I was just totally bedridden. 
And I don't think it, it doesn't say there, you know, hand me the stick, teach me how to use a wheelchair. And so I sort of felt slightly guilty and I just hoped that they could sort of see. I was making a big sweep with my arm saying, look, all of you, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And in your spare time, you're learning Yiddish. I am. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, we need a bit of spare time, don't we? Um, so, and need ways of filling our time. So, um, yeah, Yiddish is a language that uh, Jews who lived in Eastern Europe, or still do, there are still a few, um, uh, many live outside of Eastern Europe, in, uh, in America, Britain, France, Israel, and that language, Yiddish, uh, was the language of my grandparents, great-grandparents, and to a certain extent of my parents. And I'm stealing a, a sort of joke now. Uh, I want to be able to talk to them. And I thought, well, I'll learn, I'll turn my, the little words, the, the little collection, rag bag of words and phrases that I know um, into a way of speaking it. So I go to Yiddish classes on Zoom. Uh, other remote systems are available. Um, but I go to uh, Yiddish classes on Zoom every Sunday night for two hours. And um, and learn Yiddish, yes. Is it hard? Uh, what's hard for me uh, is not the speaking bit. That's fine. It's just that uh, Yiddish is traditionally written in a form of he the Hebrew alphabet, which is, as you know, as people will know, is not the same as the, the Roman alphabet, the ABC thing. So this is called Aleph Base. And so there are 40 characters in the printed form and another 40 of it pure. Um, in the written form, when you handwrite it. And I only knew three, because I did go to Hebrew classes for a very short while when I was about seven, possibly six, actually, when I was six. But I ran away from Hebrew classes because they shouted at me at Chessington Zoo. So uh, they were cross with me that I'd gone off on my own and made them all worried. But as a little six-year-old, you don't understand that. But I'd made them worried. I just thought they were being horrid to me. And so I said to my parents, I'm not going to Hebrew classes anymore. And they said, fair enough. So I'd only learned three letters. And um, <laughs> so when I sat down to learn it properly, as my friends told me, I couldn't just chat away. I had to learn the letters. I had to start off with 37 letters to learn. And when you've got an old crusty brain like mine, it doesn't want to learn. It keeps resisting and it keeps going, no, you don't need to learn anything more, Michael. Your brain's stuffed full of stuff anyway. <laughs> and, I, and I would go, no, I've got to learn the letter. And so there's been quite a battle going on in my brain between the, 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 one that, the, the keen one who wants to learn and the crusty one who says, no, go away, shut up. Stum, as you'd say in Yiddish, stum. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't learn it. So anyway, I can say a few things. So anyway, I'm coming along. But as it's a little bit like, it isn't, but it's a little bit like German, which I studied at school, some of the grammar and that sort of thing, I, I find relatively easy. It's not, it's not completely foreign to me. Yeah. Best of luck with all your endeavours, Michael Rosen. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. And best of luck with whatever lovely things you're planning to do. Thank you. Michael Rosen, um, whose latest book, he's written hundreds uh, well, nearly a couple of hundred, I think, of prose and poems, but his latest book is a, a memoir um, called Getting Better, Life Lessons on Going Under, Getting Over It and Getting Through It.